Hello, sports movie aficionados, and thank you for spending time with the 62nd edition of Scoring at the Movies, the podcast that jaws about films with athletics in them, usually from many years ago. We won't take any sass about spoilers because we're warning you right now that we'll be talking about love and basketball from beginning to end. I'm the guy with a pretty good jump shot who plays with anger and sometimes talks to himself while playing, Ryan Ellis. And here's the fellow who enjoys makeovers, and one day will have to go one-on-one with me to win my heart, Chris Gregorio. Thank you, Ryan, and the only thing I enjoy more than a good makeover is a nice slinky dress that my mother forces me to wear for a nice dance out. When we play one-on-one, I just assume it'll be strip basketball, right? (laughs) I always wondered why you insisted on that particular format whenever we'd play basketball. Now it all makes sense. It all adds up. I understand now why you kept missing all those layups that whole time. Like, oops, I missed again. Okay. Darn. (laughs) Darn. I've seen this movie more than once. You have seen it now for the first time, so you at last understand. Well, I see you're about to grab a drink of something there. You might as well tell us all what it is. What are you drinking? This is a rare Friday evening recording for us, which we don't do all that often. So I'm going to be interested to see what this is like about 30 or 40 minutes in because I'm finishing my dinner beer right now, which followed my yay, it's Friday, end of work beer. And I'll shortly be cracking the 12-year-old scotch blend sipper for our discussion here so 30 or 40 minutes into this when i'm incoherently rambling about those damn yankees and lakers and stupid stuck up spoiled non-torontonian sports fans you'll know what that's all about (laughs) you're not really pairing this time you're just drinking what you already had and pulling out the scotch for no good reason other than you want scotch on a friday okay love and basketball was released a little over 20 years ago by new line on april 21st 2000 It didn't rake in very much money, but it's not like the studio ponied up a lot of dough to make it either. And you said a minute ago about makeovers. I'll do the movie in a nutshell right now. One of the most beautiful girls in school settles for her next door neighbor. (laughs) It's like Monica and Monica again and Chandler and friends. Rachel says that in a fight with Monica at one point. You just go across the hall and take the first guy you find. Why does she settle for this guy that obviously, okay, she's in love with him. It's clear from the beginning she's in love with him. It's a lot like when Harry met Sally. Bev and I watched that again recently, and it's clear that Sally is in love with Harry before he finally realizes he's in love with her, and she's mad about the way he handles things for so much of that movie. Years in that movie. Years in this movie, too, and it very much has, this movie does, a When Harry Met Sally vibe. But anyway, she settles for a guy who's not very good to her a lot of the time. The nutshell I was going to use... She has a cheek scar. She's hideous. Is that a scar that the actress has? Yep. So now Lathan actually has a scar that's just like Parminda Nagra and Bennett like Beckham because she's got a scar. They thought, we've got to incorporate this. Who cares? People get scars in life for reasons you don't know why. So anyway, that's why she has a scar from when she's a kid. And when Quincy shoves her down, I like how in this movie he immediately feels bad and he's doodling sorry on a notepad soon after. Like you said, this is the first time I watched this movie, and so I had no idea, really, what the grown-up version of Monica looked like. Even though I've seen that actress in other movies, she's not a face that immediately comes to mind, and you think, oh yeah, she's got this small scar on her jawline. So when that scene happened, and young Quincy pushes down young Monica, 
And then the next time we see Monica, she's got this enormous bandage across her face from a fall that looked kind of innocuous. Yeah, I guess she sort of fell through some bushes or something. But kids fall, they play basketball, whatever. It's a little bit of a hard push. And then next thing you know, it kind of looks like somebody had taken a machete to her face if you base it on the size of the bandage they put on it. And then when I saw the grown-up her with this tiny little scar, I thought, okay, well, they have to telegraph that, oh, look, here's how she got that very small and barely noticeable mark on her jawline, guys. So don't even sweat it. But if you're going to settle for a guy next door... Yes, he's a total putz and an ass to her in this movie, but he's also a very good-looking dude that plays in the NBA. So, okay, if you can put up with the emotional trauma of being with this man, you do have some benefits to it. You're not just totally settling, necessarily. I'm just trying to be a wise-ass in saying that, because obviously she's not really settling, and she, as I said before, is clearly in love with him for many years, so it's not settling so much. But like in Friends, she just goes across the way. Although there's one of the best scenes in this whole movie, Quincy goes over to sleep at Monica's after his parents have what seems to be another fight. Mm-hmm. It seems like he's doing this often because of how matter-of-fact she is. Okay, here you go. Throwing you the pillow. Throwing you the blanket. This has happened a lot of times before, and it's a really sweet and well-done scene with no dialogue. The way they do it is, is hugely important, right? Because they're next-door neighbors, and their bedrooms actually face each other on opposite walls of the house. The parents are having a fight, and at this point, he's like 18. He's a high school senior or thereabouts in the second quarter of this movie. So he quietly climbs out of his bedroom window, climbs into hers. She hands him the blanket, the pillow, and he lays down on the floor next to her bed. And you're right. It's like this unspoken agreement that they have that, okay, they're at it again. Hey, yeah, no problem here. Just lie down, go to sleep. Not a word is spoken in that scene, which is great. I love it. Reminded me of Forrest Gump when Jenny comes over to Forrest's place when her dad is, well, we learn later, been molesting her. Which is also really handled well in that movie when Forrest says something like, her dad liked to kiss her and touch her. Forrest doesn't understand that, but we certainly do know what that means. But when she comes over as a little girl and climbs up the trellis and goes into his bed, it seems so matter-of-fact. Clearly, just like in this movie, Jenny's done that lots of times and has had to do it lots of times. Obviously, the last movie we did, Mystery Alaska, I clearly despise. I didn't care about any of those characters. They all felt like totally undeveloped, one-note kind of things. This is a perfect example of a movie that there's not a huge plot arc that happens. There's no real grand event like there is in Mystery Alaska that everyone's rooting for. It's just really a story of two people. But you care about them by the end, whether or not they're flawed individuals, because of moments like this. They don't say anything. There's no exposition. They aren't telling you a grand story about themselves. They're just showing you something, and you can infer a lot from that action. I couldn't help but contrast it to Mystery Alaska, just because it is the last thing we've talked about. It's almost like a palate cleanser. Watching something that you dislike that much (laughs) makes you really kind of appreciate these touches in, frankly, what I think are better movies, and why you consider them as a viewer better movies. And it's exactly that reason to me. It's just little touches that make you care about the character, that fleshes them out, that makes them seem a little bit more real. Right, Because these are just little idiosyncratic behaviors that are just specific to their relationship. And we never saw any of that in the last movie we talked about. So you don't have to give me your score just now. You can do that later if you want to. But it sounds like you like the movie. Yeah, I think there's aspects of it that are a little bit flawed and like anything else. It's not a perfect movie by any stretch. But yeah, I thought it was pretty well done. This is a movie that you suggested we do. We own it as well. That always helps. Yeah. (laughs) It's easy to find because it's on the shelf. Exactly. I started watching it, and it starts out with these two kids, Monica and Q, meeting each other when Q's playing basketball with his friends. I'm not a huge fan of small relationship movies, but by the end of it, 
I legitimately enjoyed watching their relationship develop. And you cared about them, obviously. I cared about them. As did I. As much as this is kind of a sports movie, sports just serves as a backdrop for the specific relationship that this movie is examining. So the fact that I cared about it and actually enjoyed watching it by the end of the movie, I thought, you know what? Kudos, movie. Good job. And I can't remember the name of this director, but I know it was the first movie she directed, I understand. Gina Prince-Bythewood. Yeah, she hasn't done a lot of movies. She did The Old Guard, which has been on Netflix this oh, really? year. The Charlize Theron. I probably shouldn't give away the plot of that movie if people don't know what the twist is. I think it's supposed to be a twist. Mm-hmm. But she directed that action movie with Charlize Theron earlier this year. And this was her debut. You're right about that. She's only directed four things in total, including The Old Guard. So it's Beyond the Lights. I haven't seen that. And The Secret Life of Bees. But that's it. And all this time. Well, black woman in Hollywood, that's not surprising. Maybe she'll get more work now because of the way things are changing in that business. But yeah, she directed a movie that's also very appropriate when it comes to the title. We didn't like, I didn't like, Mystery Alaska as a title. Because what does that mean exactly? Yes, that's the town they live in in Alaska, but it's still a terrible title. Pond Rules may be not the greatest title, but it's more appropriate. But love and basketball doesn't get much more literal than that. This movie is all about basketball and certainly about love. And that's what Omar Epps, that's what Q actually says at one point when he's talking near the end of the movie to Monica. That's how he summarizes their life together is love and basketball. The director, was she a writer of the script as well? She wrote this, yeah. She did, yeah. Okay, Mm -hmm. I thought so. Original screenplay. And Spike Lee produced it and his usual music composer, Terrence Blanchard, did the music for this as well. So... Bev has been critical of Spike Lee's music scores in his movies with Terrence Blanchard lots of times because it just blankets the film and it often drowns with the dialogue. But in this, Terrence Blanchard's music is fine because it's not so over everything. So it's interesting to see that some of Spike Lee's people are involved in her movie, but this is clearly her movie. She probably just used him, I think she used him, but had his talents and his name in Hollywood to get the movie made in the first place. And it sounds like, from what I can tell, it looks like, from what I can tell, that he let her make the movie and didn't horn in too much. You're right, there isn't the same kind of Spike Lee influence over this movie, definitely. I found the music a little bit more intrusive, maybe, than you did. Well, I only say that because usually Terrence Blanchard's scores with Spike Lee are so much, and so loud, and so constant. So it's like a bell curve here, like sliding scale in this case. Okay, It was a little bit jarring in those early scenes of the movie, when they're playing ball, and I guess it's supposed to be, at that point, the mid to late 80s. That's 1981, so they're 11 years early, she is 11 years old. And he's wearing a Clippers shirt, because of course his dad is a Clipper, Zeke McCall, and she's wearing a Lakers cap. So right away, even though they like each other pretty much right away, they're already contrasting and conflicting, Lakers and Clippers. That's a fun moment too. But yeah, the music was a little bit over the top, I thought, initially. And then as the movie progressed through its quarters and the characters get older, so you get 1988, 1993, in every sequence, in every quarter, there's at least one scene where the music just lays it on thick, really layered over. Eventually, I started to cut it a little bit of slack for that because I thought, okay, you know what? This is a way that the movie can really demonstrate the passage of time, right? Because there's a change in the style of the music as it goes along. That does actually kind of help demonstrate that to me as the viewer. You did mention the Clippers versus Lakers rivalry right off the get-go, which I thought was a fun little wrinkle that the filmmaker wrote into the script that the very first interaction they have, they argue the merits of... Q's dad, Dennis Habert, Zeke McCall. Haysbert. Dennis Haysbert. Yeah, what did I say? You said Habert. Habert. Haysbert, yeah. This is his trifecta. We watched him in Major League as Serrano. Oh, God. Mr. Baseball. Mr. Baseball, thank you, as Tom Selleck's buddy. The second baseman, yeah. And, of course, he's in Major League 2. He is still a Serrano, which we haven't covered, but he's in that with... Omar Epps. Omar Epps, who took over for Wesley Snipes playing Willie Mays Hayes. we got to watch that movie at some point. I'm sure we will. We'll cover Major League 2. We'll run out of movies we want to cover 
well, that movie's at least watchable. I like some things in Major League Two quite a bit, including the ending. But you were saying about Haysbert, though. Yeah, so he plays, obviously, for the Clippers in this movie. That's his character's backstory. Monica is the big devotee of Magic Johnson, which makes a ton of sense, frankly, if you're living in the L.A. area. Who wasn't in the 80s? Yeah, who wasn't? Especially a black kid in L.A., although she's from Atlanta. They moved from Atlanta at the beginning of the film. So she could have been an Atlanta Hawks fan, I guess, but she's not. She's a Lakers fan. Who would have been a big Lake, rather Atlanta Hawks player in 1981? I was going to say Dominique Wilkins. Probably too early for Dominique Wilkins. Yeah. I, think, yeah. I don't even know who played for the Hawks in 81. <laughs> well, while you make your point about Haysbert, I'll look it up. The little trash-talking scenes back and forth between the kids at that point, I kind of loved because he's talking about Q, that is, is talking about how great a player his dad is and how he plays for the Clippers, and Monica's dad, who's... It's one of those my-dad-is-better-than-your-dad moments, right, that we all have as little kids a lot of the time. My dad plays for the Clippers. He's an NBA player. He's a pro baller. What does your dad do? Well, my dad's a banker. But look, I got these number 32 on my sneakers for Magic Johnson. He's my favorite player. And he scored 48 points playing six-minute quarters. And your dad plays for the worst team in the NBA. And young Quincy has this, like, slack-jawed, the Clippers are the worst team in the NBA kind of moment that I thought was super cute. This is how I find out? You tell me? (gasps) He was almost as emotionally distraught about finding out that the Clippers were the worst team in the NBA as older Omar Epps Quincy would be finding out that his dad was fathering children with other women. That's how emotionally fraught young Quincy was at that point. (laughs) What destroyed him more? (laughs) It's a toss-up. A little from column A and a little from column B. I'm sure if his dad played for the Lakers and had a bunch of illegitimate children, it would have been perfectly fine with Quincy. But the fact that he did it with the Clippers, no. By the way, Dominique Wilkins got started in 82-83 with the Atlanta Hawks. So this is before his time, this time frame of 1981. As far as the whole thing about Zeke being a cheater, which the younger Quincy can accept, but later he finds out when his father actually tells him about it, really ruins him in a lot of ways. But one of the big things about it is that his dad is supposed to be so upstanding. And also Dennis Haysbert usually played upstanding guys. He's also the president in 24. I've never seen 24, but I know he played that president for, I think, a couple of years, right? You've never seen that show? Never saw it. That is a shocking gap. In you know your... why? I have one reason, and it may not be logical, but here's my reason. During the baseball playoffs, and it must have been a 99 or 98, somewhere around then, whenever 24 started, every single commercial break was Kiefer Sutherland saying, Who are you working for? <laughs> And I started hating that show because I never saw anything other than that stupid promo so many times. I'm not watching the show. Folded my arms, pouted my bottom lip and said, no. That's my reason. Maybe stupid. And I just really wasn't into the idea of it after it had been on for a few years. And people loved it. But uh, I don't know. Just never saw it. I have avoided more culturally popular things for more petty reasons than that. Okay. There you go. I had, frankly, an overwhelming desire to go buy some kind of insurance coverage with Allstate by the end of this movie. Not sure why. (laughs) All I can say now is I've got the most comprehensive automobile collision coverage that you can possibly get. (laughs) Which you don't need because you're not driving anywhere. Yeah. (laughs) I drive to work. I'm one of the only people I know that drives much anymore. And even at that, it's not for very long or very far. I was watching this movie. I was about halfway through it. Allison walks into the kitchen. She's just doing something, not paying any attention to the television and what's on it at all. And she says, is that the Allstate guy? Yeah. (laughs) That's Zeke. He's the Allstate guy. That actor, Dennis Haysbert has that voice that is so distinctive. It's like Morgan Freeman-esque, right? It doesn't matter what the context is. Yeah. You hear it, you know who that is. You might not know his name, but you know who it is, right? Yeah, it's such a deep voice, too. And he's played an athlete, like we said, lots of times, baseball especially. He's six foot four and three quarters. But Omar Epps is nowhere near as tall as that. So you can see Haysbert playing a basketball player. And of course, he's so towering and huge in the Major League movies. 
so yeah, he doesn't mean to do it, but he's crushing his son's spirit in humanity in a lot of ways. Because also, when Quincy cheats on Monica when they're together, and they're together longer in this movie than I would have thought. This is one of those films similar to When Harry Met Sally, but of course, they don't get together and stay together until the very end, the last couple minutes of the whole film, even though they slept together a little past the halfway point. But in this film, the two main characters are together for a very long time. Then he finds out his dad actually was cheating, and this isn't just his mom accusing him of it, and it crushes him, and then he starts cheating maybe because monkey see, monkey do. When my hero's doing it, I might as well too, even though right now, I also kind of hate my hero. This is another reason why, by the end of this, I couldn't help but give a little tip of my cap to the movie. It's because of moments like you're describing. When I was watching that initial scene of Quincy, Omar Epps' character, his dad tells him, you're going to hear all this talk about a paternity suit being filed against me, but don't listen to them. I didn't do it. I swear to you, I didn't do it. And he believes him, right? Because it's his dad and he's looked up to him his whole life. And then later he goes to visit his mother and his mother is in a drunken stupor out by their swimming pool because she's just received photos from a private investigator of Dennis Haysbert going to some no-tell motel with a random woman. Clearly he's been sleeping around on her for a long time and it's implied that He's been having a lot of quote-unquote late nights, and that was probably one of the many causes of their fights that Quincy was escaping when he ran over to Monica's room while he was growing up. So when Quincy is forced to come to grips with the fact that not only was his dad cheating on his mom for probably a long time, not only did he have probably illegitimate children with at least one of these women, but he also lied about it to Quincy's face when directly asked. For years. For years. Quincy responds to this by understandably being pissed off with his dad. That makes perfect sense. You're a young man. You're going to be pissed off. But then by petulantly going and getting loaded, cheating on Monica, and then deciding, screw it, I'm going to drop out of school and declare for the draft. Three kind of very self-destructive responses to this. And I thought, okay, that's a little over the top. And then I had to sort of turn my mind back and think, when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, If this kind of thing happened to me, if I had that kind of discussion with my father and then I found out he lied to me about having a kid with some other woman, as much as I would be disappointed in him for his behavior and being unfaithful to my mother and all that kind of fun stuff, being lied to to your face when you ask your father that question, that would be the most crushing thing to me. And I think it is for Quincy, too. Yes. It's easy for me to say at 39, but at 18... I'd probably do the same thing. I'd go get drunk. I'd say, screw you, Dad. You want me to stay in school? No, I'm going to drop out and declare for the draft. doesn't matter if my game's not ready. doesn't matter if I'm short-selling myself long-term. But that kind of self-destructive behavior, I think, is probably pretty accurate of a teenager or a young man in his early 20s. As a species, we're not emotionally mature. 99% of us at that age. It takes time. Or this age. I'm not emotionally sure yet anyway, but yeah. Haysbert's character would be younger than you are, and you're not quite 40, so even he's obviously not mature enough to settle down. Although people cheat for all kinds of reasons. Calling them immature is maybe not right, but in some ways it's being immature. Granted, this movie came out 20 years ago, but I think a lot of us who are sports fans at the very least are a little bit more eyes wide open about what professional athletes get up to and have been getting up to for at least half a century. We know... Now, certainly from The Last Dance, what the Bulls' life was like during their heyday runs in the 90s, we know all about now what people like Wilt Chamberlain were able to get up to in the 70s. You didn't have to be a multimillionaire to receive the adoration of a fan base, right? So it shouldn't be that shocking necessarily to a 20-something Quincy that his dad on the road was sleeping around on his mom when he's a famous athlete. As much as I like to think of myself as a moral person, 
And I like to think that if I were a famous professional athlete who was rich and just having women throwing themselves at me all the time, that I would say, no, I'm married, get away from me. I'm not going to pretend that I'm an infinite well of morality. That's honest. Put yourself in his shoes. A lot of people would say, I would never do that. I've known people. I used to have a friend who would make that kind of claim. Just the notion of, I know what I would do. You don't know what you would do. And money's a big part of it. You said a minute ago that he's on the road and everything, and he's a basketball player in the pros, no matter how successful he actually is. Even with the Clippers, he's doing well by normal human standards. And it's nice to see a movie with black characters who do have money. These people live in a pretty nice neighborhood. And, of course, Omar Epps becomes a pro himself. And then even more so at the very end, Monica's a pro in the new WNBA, the very end of the film. So they're doing well. And it's nice to see a movie with black characters that are. But I do appreciate you saying that, that you don't know what you would do in those situations and neither would I. Because as Bill Maher once said, and this is a little bit cynical, but he's a cynical guy, men are only as loyal as their options. That is a very cynical take on it. Honestly, I know what I would say the first time. I know what I would say the second time. <laughs> I know what I would yeah. say the third time. But by the time you get to, I don't know, time 10, 20, 30 of young, beautiful women throwing themselves at you. And you're lonely. And you're lonely, and you're on the road half the year. I'd like to think that I would do the right thing every time, but I can't on a Bible that I don't really believe in anyway. But And on a Bible, I couldn't swear that I wouldn't do something that I'd regret later anyway. Speaking of sleeping around, by the way, I think one of the reasons why, and this was almost my nutshell, but one of the reasons why Quincy leaves the way he does, obviously more than once, but we only see it portrayed once, goes to Monica's room and sleeps on her floor, He's really just leaving because his rich parents have him sleeping in a single bed. <laughs> Do you notice that? That is true. That bed's the smallest thing I've ever seen somebody sleep in. <laughs> Maybe it's supposed to be for comedic effect, but that thing is barely big enough for him, and he's not a very big guy. He might not look like a huge guy, but you gotta believe he's a reasonably sized human being. You're right, that's a tiny bed. His mother even tells him early on, I think in, quote-unquote, the second quarter, right? Because this movie split those four quarters as they progress through their lives. He's getting young women throwing themselves at him while he's still in high school. And she tells him they just want you because they see you've got money. They see your car. But by the time that he takes them back to his bedroom, they probably say, oh, really? Single bed? <laughs> no, you're not as rich as I thought. You know what? I'm out of here. Maybe his parents refuse to buy bigger, more elaborate bed furniture because if he gets some young women into his bedroom, they want that to be the last line of defense. God, really? <laughs> Racing car bed? Better no, than a condom. No, I'm out of here. <laughs> That's a good theory. Incidentally, Omar Epps is just shy of 5'11". So he looks like a little guy, but he's not that little. He's taller than me. Shorter than you, but taller than me. And he does play a guard, too. So that height is short for an NBA player, but not really so much for a guard. Let's back up a little bit and do the numbers. There are not that many of them in this movie. It did not get nominated for the top 50 sports movies in the AFI's sports genre, but it should have been, I think. Or at least more so than Mystery Alaska, which was nominated. Mystery Alaska! So Rotten Tomatoes numbers for Love and Basketball, 83% of critics like the film, 6.8 out of 10, and 95% of audiences. So the audiences just love this movie. That's one of the best scores I've ever reported to you about the audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. And it was 86 at the 2000 U.S. box office. The Grinch was number one. Bring It On, which we covered last year, the cheerleading movie was 32nd. Remember the Titans we covered earlier this year was 14th. And Girl Fight, which we also covered earlier this year, was 183rd. And between you, me, and Bev... Now, two different channels, because, of course, Scoring at the Movies is on its own channel. There have been a lot of 2000s movies covered just this year alone. And we've done at least those three. Remember the Titans, Girl Fight, and now Love and Basketball. I certainly liked Remember the Titans the most. And Girl Fight might slip in just ahead of Love and Basketball for me. If I had to wager a guess as to why the critics, even if they liked the movie, didn't rave about it, maybe it has something to do with the Quincy character himself. Where did it fail me the most? That would be it. 
Yes, he's a spoiled kid. His dad's an NBA player, so he's known nothing but luxury his whole life. And that's a fantastic wrinkle in his character that is played on a number of times. I like that. But he is, frankly, a little bit irredeemable throughout this movie, until the very end. He does nothing but treat the people around him poorly. At times, his mother, his father, and most notably, Monica. By the end of it, when she's essentially crawling back to him, begging him to take her back and not marry the only person that they could think of to cast as the fiancé for Quincy who might be more attractive than Monica... Well, it's got to be Tyra Banks, right? Because in 2000, who else are you going to find that could make Monica look pale by comparison? Because Sanaa Lathan's beautiful in her own right. Well, this is a great-looking cast, though, because don't forget, Regina Hall from Scary Movie and Girls Trip a couple years ago plays Sanaa Lathan's sister. And Gabrielle Union's in the movie briefly. She was in Bring It On, which I talked about a minute ago, and many other big roles. She also married, I forgot about this, Dwayne Wade. But Gabrielle Union then and now, also pretty beautiful. So either one of those, if they'd been the fiancé, Work. At least on par with Sanaa Lathan, I would say, especially Gabrielle Union. Wow. She might just be titled Hoochie Character Number One in this movie because she's meant just to be <laughs> the easy girl in high school. If she was anybody but that character, she wouldn't have been able to utter the immortal line of, look at that booty, I just want to lick the sweat off of it when she sees <laughs> Omar Epps playing basketball. Omar Epps is ripped in this movie. Right? He's in fantastic shape. But it's not like he has this huge bubble butt. Right. He's a very slim dude, so he's got kind of like a narrow ass. When they zoom in, they zoom the camera in on his butt and Gabriel... It's fine. Uses, it's it's fine. okay. His whole body is good. It doesn't yeah. stand out. He doesn't have a great ass! <laughs> <laughs> and Gabriel Union's head is all up in it. Or at least she wants it to be. You want to see a great ass on a basketball player? Look at Kyle Lowry for the Toronto Raptors. That man is booty-tastic, damn it. Now that's an ass you could lick sweat off of. <laughs> we talked about Quincy being a bit of a dick in the whole movie. I think what I would say about that is he is, but it's subtle enough and it's not over the top. He's not abusive at all, certainly not physically, and not even with bad words. not like he's gaslighting her or anything like that. But he does say when they're both at USC, because she finds out she's going to USC, and then he tells her that he is too. Then they have sex. We'll talk about that in a second. But he says to her, you're going to get more play being Quincy's girl. That's one of the worst things he says in the whole movie. She doesn't take it that badly. They don't fight. Then they have that one-on-one which she wins, the strip game they play, and she wins. He probably lets her win. But that's a pretty shitty thing to say. You're going to get more play now that you're Quincy's girl. Like you said, this is a long relationship, and you're only going to see so much in a very abbreviated set of scenes within the yeah, movie. Right. So it's clear that we are meant to understand that he's not a terribly good boyfriend. The moment that he demonstrates the least compassion towards her was not necessarily when he said some of these thoughtless things, because, like I said, he is established as a character that hasn't had to go through a lot of emotionally trying things in his life. He's been very sheltered, which is part of the reason why that revelation that his dad was a little bit of a two-face hit him so hard. And while this obviously would be a factor in their American lives or in any country on this planet, this movie that I can recall doesn't deal with race at all. No, it doesn't Surely he would have been pulled over because he's black and so would she, but more so him. But it's surprising because we've covered some racial movies this year, or movies that have that element. Remember the Titans does, Girl Fight does to some degree. He Got Game, I guess, did. Was that last year? Anyway, we've covered plenty of movies in the past year or so that have had this kind of issue. But this movie doesn't go down that road at all. And that's probably for the best. Not every movie that's about black characters has to deal with that. And this movie really is mostly about black characters, too. The only moment that touches on that at all is early on after the scene where 11-year-old Quincy pushes over Monica and then he and his mother go to visit Monica's house afterwards to give the cake and say, I'm sorry. 
and Quincy's mother makes an awkward joke because his dad previously played for LA, been traded away, and was now traded back to the Clippers. So she says, we used to live here X number of years ago, back when it was more of a mixed neighborhood, when the other black folk were down the street, not next door, ha ha ha. And Monica's mother gives her this, what the hell is your problem, lady, kind of look. Which I guess was an implication that, isn't it fun that people of color are moving into this neighborhood in the early 80s, moving on up kind of stuff? So there was like that one intentionally awkward moment of pointing out a little bit of racial inequality, I think. But beyond that, you're right, it doesn't touch on it. The moment of clarity for me with the relationship between Q and Monica was just after he had found out about his dad's cheating and they were sitting in the stands after her game, right? He's seen. Their whole relationship is founded around basketball. She's staring at the clock because coach has given her a curfew, right? And she says to him, come back to my dorm room. We'll talk there essentially or do something else there. And he says, no, nah, no, nah, let's just hang out here. I'm feeling kind of shitty about all of this. He realizes she's looking at the clock and says, what's your problem? And then she explains the curfew thing and he doesn't react well. It so perfectly demonstrated his emotional immaturity and how little he cares to extend to Monica the same kind of compassion that he wants extended to him. Because if the tables were turned, he would not blink at getting back to his room by 11 to beat curfew because basketball is all that matters to him. That's his whole life. So the fact that he can't recognize that in her and won't even extend to her the slightest ounce of sympathy over it, and in fact, later in the movie, holds it against her. I think he dumps her because of that, doesn't he? It's one of the rationales. You don't have enough time in your life for me kind of thing, he says later when Mm -hmm. he dumps her. But later on, she tries to hang out with him, and he says, no, i got to get back to my room. i got a curfew or something. A spiteful little callback just to slight her a little before he dumps her. Well, I saw the movie with Bab because she's a big fan of it, and she points out before the scene even started, because she knows the details of the movie better than I did at the time, that that scene really bothered her, and she thought he was being so unreasonable. And, of course, I see the scene and fully agree with her. Sometimes your job, no matter what your job is in life, is more important than your family. This whole notion that Hollywood puts in so many movies about family is always first from people that work 16-hour days. Okay, that's a crock. Sometimes when it comes down to you have to be somewhere at a certain point, this isn't optional, this can't be done tomorrow, this can't be done next week, and especially when you're still a kid and you've got a coach that is putting this curfew on you. Now, if his father had died and she said, I can't go to the funeral because of my team, that would be a little harder to understand. We talked about in Pumping Iron, I think it was, where Schwarzenegger says he missed his father's funeral because he had to work out for one of his meets. Then we also talked about how that may have just been a lie, but let's say it was true. In some ways, I understand that because sometimes you're often, your job is more important. This isn't their job yet. They hope it's going to be, can be more important than your boyfriend being down. And he knows that better than anybody else would. So yeah, exactly. That is hypocrisy in his part of the highest order. And I'm sure that Gina Prince-Bythe would put that in the screenplay for exactly that reason. She's not making him come across as a complete ass, but ass enough. In my eyes, he was a complete ass. And whether or not it's their job... He's not being mean, I guess is what I'm no, saying. He's not, he's not mean, being you're... a mean-spirited. That's what I mean. It's not mean. It's just small. And it's short-sighted. And like I said, it's lacking in compassion. Because both of them have spent their entire lives working towards a dream. And she is just on the cusp of achieving that dream. It's not like she doesn't extend to him an olive branch, right? And that's the key aspect of her saying, come with me back to my dorm room. We can talk some more. And him saying, no... She's not just saying, well, okay, it's 11, I gotta go, see ya. She's still willing to be there for him. It's just that he is demanding of her to be there in a very specific way on his terms. 
And one of the interesting things about this movie that I thought the director did very well was subtly illustrate the different paths the two of them were taking towards this dream. They're both exceptionally talented, that's made clear. But one thing we know about athletes in America, basketball or otherwise, if you are the best of the best by the time you graduate from high school, LeBron James might be the peak example of this, but you don't even have to be that good. If you're as good as Omar Epps' character was by the time he declares for college, you're guaranteed going to the NBA. You might not succeed at the NBA because you still have to work your ass off to get good enough to compete with players at that level, but at the very least, you're going to get drafted, you're going to get a few million bucks out of your initial contracts. That gap of working through college to the NBA, it's almost irrelevant affecting your draft status, perhaps. I also like that he isn't a starter or a star. He's in the NBA, which very few people ever get to do, but he's just in the NBA. He's not a superstar. That was a really good touch. But she is a superstar on her teams. But when they were younger, he was the star, and she was good, but struggled and had a lot of problems with emotions. She couldn't contain her emotions, cries on the bench. But she starts to mature, and he doesn't really evolve the way that she does. But when they're in their teens, between the two of them, he's the better player, probably, pound for pound, guys versus guys, and then girls versus girls. She's probably not as good as he is. But by the end of the movie, even though he beats her in that one-on-one game, let me ask you that question. I've got two questions for I want to ask right now, actually. One is, who's the better player between the two of them? And two is, do you think lifelong friends who did have a kiss long before can actually truly fall in love? People who've been friends for a long time, and then they are together in college, but then they're not for a long time when they grow up and they've matured. So two things. Who's the better player? And can they honestly truly be when Harry met Sally and fall in love? Who's the better player? I don't know. She holds her own with him, at least. At the very least, she holds her own. And we get the one-on-one at the end of the movie that we never got in The Color of Money or Rounders. Rounders between Damon and Norton, not between Damon and Malkovich. And I think that's why I say I don't know, right? Because she is clearly better at a lot of things. And he's recovering from a ACL tear, though, too, so he's not fully healthy. If i got to be honest with you, that's another little nitpick I would have with this movie. I would have preferred that he hadn't been hurt. I don't think that injury really affected much of the movie. Except, I guess, gave Monica a rationale to actually visit Quincy again, but I think you could engineer a different reason for that. It undercut that moment at the end of the movie, although he still wins, so I guess it doesn't really matter that much. And that great touch at the end, where she says, or where he says... Double or nothing? Him agreeing to play her at all, she's already won. Because if he didn't love her, and he really did love Kira, or Kyra, however they pronounce Tyra Banks' character's name, so Q's fiancé, if he actually loved her as much as he says he does, and really wanted to marry her and wasn't about to ditch her two weeks before the wedding and then have a kid with Monica at the end of the film. If he really loved the other woman, he wouldn't agree to play at all because the bet is one-on-one for your heart. So anyway, you think that you don't know who's the better player is. I'm guessing when healthy, it's probably him, but she comes close at least. So the second answer would be about can two lifelong or at least longtime friends actually fall in love? I think so. We know people. Oh, we do know people. Two of our best friends, I don't know how long they were friends, but it was for quite a few years, and they've told the story before. Our friends James and Val actually, somewhere in there, realized, hey, you know what? This is not just friendship. And now they've been married for quite a few years, and they're one of my favorite couples. Of all the things this movie did well, I thought that was one of them, is the evolution of this relationship. As poorly as Quincy at times treated Monica, it felt quasi-realistic, right? These childhood friends that grew into a romance together split up for petulant reasons on at least one of their parts. His part. Yeah, Quincy's part. And then found each other again later in life. I thought the way they handled it at the end, maybe not perfect, but pretty well done, given the context of the movie as a whole. 
because the climactic confrontation between Monica and Quincy could have very easily fallen into the sort of Hollywood romantic comedy trope of running to the wedding at the altar and declaring your yes. love and the other person saying, oh, I love you too. Instead, it's Monica getting Quincy to come out of his bedroom window for the last time and say, hey, you know what? I've always loved you. I know you're getting married in two weeks, but better to know now than never. And he's like, no, it's not better late than never. I'm getting married in two <laughs> weeks. What's wrong with you? That is a realistic reaction. If I'm getting married to someone in two weeks' time, I don't want somebody running up to me and declaring their undying love for me that I've known for the last 30 years. But he obviously loves her. If he agrees to do it, though, he obviously loves her. Because if he didn't truly love her, he wouldn't have played her at all. He would have been even angrier for doing that to him. That was the second aspect of it that I liked, is this is a man that we know to be emotionally immature. He's just been told by Monica that, oh, she's actually loved him this whole time. And the only way he can process it is through a game of one-on-one. -on -one. So when she proposes that to him, A, that shows that she knows him well enough to say, okay, you know what, we're going to settle this on the court, and that allows him to work through whatever the hell it is that he's feeling. That's the only place in the world, as this movie portrays it anyway, the two of them can actually function fully, it seems like. So I thought it felt reasonable within the context of, of Hollywood romance in a way that most movies don't. So let's get back into the arc that the two characters have, Sanaa Lathan, Omar Epps, and their basketball journey. You had some points you want to make about that. Omar Epps had such a clear path. He's the golden boy in high school. He's got his picture in the newspapers. And we see clippings of her, too, on her bedroom wall from high school, although not as big. We see clips of him playing at USC in front of the huge sold-out crowd. We see people asking him for autographs in the bar later and things like that. And then, of course, despite his dad, he drops out of school midway in his freshman year. It doesn't even look like he completed his freshman season. I don't even know if that would have been allowed by the NBA Kwame Brown was the last high school guy before they changed the rules back then to get drafted out of high school. And then thereafter, I'm pretty sure you had to go to school for a year. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, if you're Kobe or LeBron and you're all-world talents that actually became all-world talents, LeBron James, probably by the time we post this podcast, will be a champion with three different teams as a star, too. People may have been on multiple world championship teams in the NBA. I'm not even sure I didn't look this up. But to be the star of them, that's incredible. But LeBron and Kobe, who didn't go to college are special talents. So rules are different for people like that. But Omar Epps' character in this movie is a very good player, but as we said before, he's a bench player too, so would you bend the rules for a mediocre NBA talent? And his dad tries to tell him this, right? Develop your game. If you're somebody that's going to make millions of dollars just by getting drafted to the NBA, make your money while you can, because you might blow out your knee at any time, and then it's all gone as anyway. You can go back to school, man, but teams knocking at your door, offering you huge money contracts... It's not going to happen very long. So anyway, he's got most of it handed to him on a platter through his whole life. Whereas Monica, we see her in high school. She's great. By the time she gets to college, she's fighting for a right to play on the team. She's told you're only... Tough coach. Yeah, you're only on the team because somebody else got pregnant and didn't want to play. And then Sidra gets hurt, which gives her playing time, but she wouldn't have had that playing time if Sidra didn't get hurt. Yeah, and it was a nice moment when the coach told her, listen, be worried when I ignore you, not when I'm riding you. I'm riding you because I see talent in you. But even when we see the side-by-side -side of Quincy's game footage versus Monica's game footage, Quincy's playing in the field house. There's 60,000 people in the stands. There's media there. Then we see the shots of the women's team for USC playing. Tiny gym. There might be a couple hundred people in the stands. There's no media there. 
It's quite a stark contrast, and I have to believe that's an intentional thing that the director is trying to portray. These are both exceptionally talented athletes, but there's a real disparity in what they are given at this level, certainly. She fights through it, and I think that's part of the key of it, too, is that she becomes a much more mature, flawed still, yes, but a much more mature person because of the struggle she's had to undergo just to get through her USC days, get to Spain, and ultimately, like you said, come back and join the WNBA. Barcelona, I recommend fully. Bev and I went there for a honeymoon. If you can ever go see Barcelona, if this pandemic ever ends and people can travel again, I recommend to you or anyone, go to Barcelona. You'll love it. Yeah, I was going to say, did you say Barcelona or? Barcelona. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I like the fact that they were effectively superstars. You have female basketball players in Barcelona, and I can't say it properly, so I am just going to say Barcelona. <laughs> They're being asked for autographs on the street, and subtly in the background, there's a half-folded-over poster of Monica. She's hawking a Spanish beverage or something, I think. And she won the Euro Championship as well, the IWBA, against Sidra, and they go to dinner together, and I think that's what sends Monica home. She's just lonely for America, even though she could keep doing this probably for another five or ten years and earn probably pretty good money over in Europe. I knew the WNBA didn't exist until the late 90s. There was a professional women's basketball association in Spain from 1964. I had no idea that there was men's professional basketball associations that old in Europe, but it's a much more established sport than I would have given it credit for, for either gender, frankly, in Europe. Well, the WNBA must have started by about 98, or maybe it was a little bit... 96. That's... Okay, because 98's portrayed at the end when Monica and Quincy have a little girl. And now Quincy's a spectator, although Monica wasn't really a spectator. She always had her own teams to play on when she wanted to play basketball. Her mother's not very supportive through the whole film. She's the one that wants her to quit as a young girl and focus on other things, even though she's clearly very talented. But then at the end, Alfre Woodard, who played her mother, Sonata Lathan's mother, in three different movies. And then she's supportive and telling her, do you really want Quincy and do you really want to play basketball? Well, do the things you want to do, even though she wasn't very supportive of the basketball stuff, at least through most of the movie. Alfred Woodard's another beautiful woman. Like I said before, this whole cast is beautiful. Debbie Morgan, who plays Quincy's mother. She was in Coach Carter. And I know her from all my children. My mom watched that soap opera for a long time. She was on that show for about 30 years. But now we've covered her twice just this year alone in basketball movies. They're only five years apart. But they're pretty good as the mothers, I think. And then Harry Lennox is Monica's father. He's now the general in the Cavill-era Superman films. Also was in the Matrix sequels, for that matter. And we've already talked about Haysbert being his dad. A lot of real-life people. Robin Roberts is portrayed in the film. Dick Vitale, who's always annoying and is annoying in this. It's gonna be awesome, baby! By the way, the casting of Sanaa Lathan is interesting because she said during the audition she was terrible at basketball. She couldn't dribble, and I'm not a very good dribbler myself, and she couldn't even really hold the ball. But she must have learned a lot. Or Gina Prince-Bythewood is... (laughs) a genius with her editor because it looks like Sonata Lathan is really good. And Omar Epps, of course, we know is an athlete from movies he did before. So I think the portrayal of the sport is quite good. And Lathan looks like a real player. But they thought about casting somebody named Nisha Butler, who was a star amateur at the time. But the thing would have been either Lathan had to go to basketball camp or Butler had to go to acting camp. And I guess they thought it'd be easier for Lathan to learn how to play basketball, at least well enough. As we said, Wesley Snipes was not the greatest athlete, but he looks like he is in Major League and White Man Can't Jump. But they ended up casting the actress rather than the basketball player in the main role of Monica. And Lathan, I think, is quite good. Bev and I covered her in Contagion earlier this year, how appropriate that was. (laughs) And she, like a lot of these actors, have worked together many times before in different movies. The two stars were in The Wood the year before this. 
And these actors work together a lot of times in other black type movies. There are more of those actually ironically around this time frame than there are now. Things like The Wood, and this movie's mostly a black cast. Brown Sugar, I haven't seen since in the theater, but that was a pretty solid film too. This was the era of black casts and I think often black directors. And in this case, a black woman director. Did you like the cast, though? I think the cast is quite good. No, the cast is good. No real superstars then or now. I guess Haysbert might be the most famous of all these people. But Lathan and Epps and certainly Gabrielle Union. Tyra Banks, I guess, actually is the biggest star of all of them. Alfred Woodard's been around a long time and is really good. I think the cast is rock solid, at least, and maybe even better than that. Omar Epps has had a fair bit of success. Like you said, Dennis Haysbert has, too. Omar Epps, I found slightly annoying by the end of the movie, but I think you're meant to. It's by design. Beyond that, I thought the cast was quite good. Haysbert is solid as the dad. Sanaa Lathan's very good as Monica. Beyond Quincy and Monica, and to a lesser extent, Zeke, there's not a ton of character moments in this. Monica's mother has the one moment where she confronts Monica about looking down your nose at me for being a housewife. A lot of female athletes, I think, particularly at the time and earlier than 2000, would have been looked down upon for wanting to be female athletes, right? So it's that kind of ironic back and forth moment between mother and daughter coming to terms with each other. Sanaa Lathan has since said that after this movie wrapped filming, she has never touched a basketball since. Really? (laughs) Well, because it was such a stressful experience for her learning how to play and having to outlast all these other prospective Monicas to get cast in the role well, I've done enough of it for my life, don't want to look at a basketball ever again kind of thing. There actually was less portrayal of basketball as a team game. We get a little bit of one-on-one, obviously, right? That's true. Some hot and sexy one-on-one strip basketball and that one-on-one game at the end of the movie, but there's not a lot of team basketball that we see. My favorite portrayal of the sport in the movie was the moment of, I think it was Monica's first USC. No, it wasn't. Sorry, it was Monica's first game with Crenshaw, her high school team that we see, where we get the inner monologue. We get the... Like I said, she talks to herself. I said in the intro that I talk to myself while she's talking to herself. Yeah, that's exactly what you referenced in the intro. That's right. We don't ever really see that, I don't think, in sports movies, that inner monologue of somebody going through it. Very famous one in Bull Durham. Costner, when he's talking to himself. What are you doing thinking about this Annie? Get your head in the game, stupid. So rarely, but not never, do we have inner voice monologues what sports could you do it i guess baseball's a good one right because it is a relatively slow-paced game basketball you could do it maybe football if you're a wide receiver or quarterback you might be able to get some inner monologue but there's a lot of downtime in football i think some of the faster paced games even soccer hockey things like that it would be really tough you're moving so much that moment where we see her oh she's laying off she's laying off go for the jump shot and then we get the reverse angle of her making the shot and then going back on defense and her inner monologue on d she learns to play better defense too she finally starts playing better defense and working harder than she had when she was younger that's one of the key moments when her coach is impressed by her that she busts ass to what's it block a shot or play some good defense when she never did that before we're not in high school anyway didn't have to she was too good i assume it was meant to be funny we get the first scene of monica at her usc practice trying to make, or she's made the team at that point, but it's her first practice when she keeps taking all the charges and getting laughed at. And then she makes the three and she holds the pose Yeah, and holds it so long. By the time the ball had gone in, they inbounded it and Citra had already run the ball in the other way for a layup. She's still holding the she's pose. She's still holding it. <laughs> we see players that will make a three and they'll hold the pose for a second, second and a half. That's 20 seconds of pass. Put your arm down, lady. Come on. It was an apt punishment, although, as Bev and I said, how long can somebody hold their arm up before it would just start cramping and going completely numb? 
I don't know how long she actually held it up, but it was quite a punishment. Not as strong as the punishments in Coach Carter, which we saw earlier this year, but pretty strong. If we ever get back to the point where we can play softball again, the next time I hit a home run, I'm just going to hold the swing, stand at home plate holding the swing, until somebody retrieves the ball, throws it back to the infield, and tags me out, still standing at home plate. And you've never moved. <laughs> I've never moved. It'll be worth it for that moment, though. All right. Well, how about can you score? Well, I guess I already talked about this, but there are beautiful people in this entire film. The film is sexy and romantic. The first time that they, well, I guess the only time we see it portrayed, that they have sex is very lusty, but by no means exploitative. I don't think you see any real body parts. I don't think you see nudity. This is a perfect date movie. And for a score, I'd say seven and a half at least, maybe even eight out of ten, but definitely seven and a half out of ten. So sexy movie, I think the sport's pretty well portrayed, I think the cast is solid. What about you? Seven and a half is a very fair score. There's flaws in it, for sure, but I think it's effective nonetheless. Scorable? Yeah, of course it is. Because like we said, the only person they could find that was more attractive than Sanaa Lathan than this was bloody Tyler <laughs> was a supermodel. <laughs> a supermodel. Maybe the most attractive person in the world in 2000. So yeah, of course it's scorable. And what I loved about this was I pop the DVD in, it's loading up, flip up to IMDb to sort of scroll through who's in the movie and all that kind of stuff. You go to the bottom and there's always the highlighted review. Whatever review just pops up that they synopsize for you without looking at the actual reviews page of IMDb. I quickly read that and it must have been apparent. I don't like sports movies, I don't like romantic comedies, but I like this movie. But, fair warning, I thought it was a wholesome movie, but there is a hot, capitalized and underlined <laughs> the word hot, love scene in the middle of the movie. Beware if you're a parent with kids. This is a PG movie, but it should be rated R. And I'm thinking, whoa, damn, what is going to go on in this movie? It's PG-13 for sexuality and language, it says. But like you said, there's zero nudity. And there's no N-words thrown around, I don't think, because again, this is not a racial movie, no. and I don't remember hearing the F word at all. We haven't said it in this podcast. We finally have a clean podcast. <laughs> I was expecting the most <laughs> intense, hot utterly explicit love scene in the middle of this movie it was that strip basketball scene where you get a lot of omar epps's torso and then a lot of that hollywood-esque guy lies on top of woman and there's some sexy background music playing and that's about kiss, it kiss kiss fade out as julie roberts has called it whoever wrote that review if you consider that a capital underline hot lovemaking <laughs> scene oh boy you have lived a chaste life my friend <laughs> Okay, solid time at the movies, and certainly a big pick-me-up from what we saw on the 1st of October, which was Mystery Alaska. We're back on the upswing, Ryan. We might be back in the downswing in two weeks, although you've wanted to cover this movie since we started in this podcast over two years ago. And in two weeks, the World Series will have just ended, so it's time to talk about baseball again. We're going to do Rookie of the Year. More than any movie we've talked about thus far, more than Ready to Rumble, for crying out loud, this movie scares me because I have a fuzzy, nostalgic recollection of it at best, but remember zero actual details about it. <laughs> Coming back to it probably 30 years after I've last seen it. Well, 27, I guess. When did it come out? 92? 93. 93, okay. 93. So, we did a lot of moves in 93 at the start of the year. We did The Sandlot, we did Rudy, and now we do Rookie of the Year at the almost end of the year. If I just end up hating this movie, <laughs> I'm going to be so upset. <laughs> Another movie that year we will eventually will probably cover is The Program. The Program with Omar Epps, who's in that too. What was The Program about? Football movie. I guess that makes sense. You don't know that one. I thought maybe you mentioned that one. Okay, yeah. When we need to complete our own Omar Epps trifecta. <laughs> so I am on Twitter and so is Chris. I am at MovieFiend51. He is at Squaring Out Movies. And you can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We are just about everywhere, as is the Topper Nighter Project. If I haven't promoted that on that website by now or in those podcasts, 
I got us on about the same places that Chris got scoring at the movies. So look for us wherever you like to get your podcasts. Take her easy, basketball players. Take her sexy, basketball players. I know that you will because I saw that you did. <laughs>